0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, particle physicist Dr Glenn Patrick will talk about the Large Hadron Collider. Based at CERN in Geneva, the collider is the largest scientific machine in the world. It started operation in the summer of 2008 and aims to produce colossal amounts of data which thousands of scientists around the world will analyse to further our understanding of the universe. Okay, you'll see there's some confusion over the title. Uh, Over here, this works. I've got the Large Hadron Collider and the Rise of the Grid, and there's a nice symmetry. I've got the Rise of the Grid and the Large Hadron Collider. I think this indicates that I didn't really know what I was going to talk about today, so 50% of you might be disappointed, or the lecture might take twice as long. Anyway, moving on. So I I am going to talk about the LHC for the first half of the talk, then tell you a little bit about grid computing, which is really uh, how we deal with the data coming from the LHC, hopefully. If the technology works, yes. So um, what's the LHC for? Well, it's to study the structure of matter. And on here, you can see this diagram here, which sort of captures the progress of particle physics throughout the 20th century. So the electron was discovered by J.J. Thompson in 1897. And then, of course, Rutherford did those famous experiments in Manchester and discovered the nucleus, and eventually the fact that the nucleus was made up of the proton. Chadwick discovered the neutron. And then throughout the latter part, past the part of the 20th century, we started to find other substructure, the fact that protons and neutrons are made up of these funny entities called quarks. And over here you see um, that this is what's called the standard model of particle physics. So these are supposed to be all the fundamental particles that everything else is made up of. So everything's either made up of quarks, protons and neutrons are made up of, of some of these, Or they're fundamental particles like the electron. The electron's a fundamental particle. But there are heavier versions of the electron, something called the muon and the tau lepton. And there are things called neutrinos here. Then finally down here, you get a very famous class of particles called gauge bosons. This is what quantum field theory is all about. Uh, All the theory in particle physics about forces is about exchanging particles. These are those exchange particles. So this thing, when it works, which isn't all the time, actually, um, is is using electricity to to work. And electricity, in the end, if you look at the fundamental process, arises through the exchange of photons. So that's the uh, electromagnetic force. The W and Z particles are responsible for the weak interaction. And this thing here is called a gluon. That's responsible for the strong nuclear force. Okay. You don't really need to know any of this for my lecture, but it sets the scene. And there's something there which says, not to be found. This is the infamous Higgs boson. So the thing that LHC hopes to find. And there will surely be a Nobel Prize in it. And for somebody in Scotland as well, uh, come to that, if it's discovered. Uh, but why carry on? Well, this model isn't perfect. There are lots of things that go into it which are known to be sort of parameters, if you like. They're put in by hand. So it's not a complete theory. And then, of course, there's all the question of, is this the final stage? Is the substructure? There are things like strings. You see this funny squiggly thing down here. String theory postulates that all these particles are made up of these funny string-like things. And you hear about membranes and extra dimensions. This thing's supposed to indicate some seven-dimensional thing. So all these extra things that might appear at the right energy. And why is energy so important? Well, this sort of gives you an idea of why uh, we need to go to higher and higher energies and accelerators. This gives you a sort of a wave, which changes in wavelength. And th- this gives you structures. Okay? So this building, this lecture theatre, is a building. And you could probably fit a, wave, a radio wave in here, something of the wavelength of you know, uh, a few metres. Okay? So you could look in this lecture theatre and probe it and try and understand its structure using a, a wave that's a bit smaller than the lecture theatre. But as you go deeper and deeper into matter, by the time you get down to atoms, you've got to have adjusted the wavelength to look into into the atom to make it appropriate to the size of the atom. And of course, once you get into nuclei and quarks, the wavelength of the probe that you're using has to be smaller and smaller. And in quantum mechanics, de Broglie came up with this uh, relation here, um, which is to do with wave-particle duality. This idea that particles and waves can behave much the same way, at least in quantum mechanics. And this tells you that the the wavelength is related to 1 over the momentum of the incident radiation, or the energy, if you like. Momentum and energy are basically the same thing. So as you increase the energy, you make the wavelength shorter. So that's why in accelerators, we go to higher and higher energies to make the wavelengths shorter and shorter to probe into matter. Okay, now, you can ignore... Again, this is a slide you can ignore. I hate talking about physics units uh, at the beginning of the talk, but it will help a little bit. Again, it's not essential. Um, Physicists, in particle physics at least, uh, measure energies and almost anything in electron volts. Uh, So what is an electron volt? It's the energy gained by an electron when it's accelerated in an electric field through a potential difference of one volt. So you've got two plates here, positive and negative. You put an electron it will drift in that electric field. And that's the definition of one electron volt. But that's a very small unit. And uh, we've got a table here. So we, we go up in thousands. So a KeV is a thousand electron volts. An MeV, mega, is a million electron volts. Giga is an American billion, if you like, a thousand million. And a TV or Terra, is a million million electron volts. And up here, I've put some sort of... Common things. Um, The energy to ionise a hydrogen atom, for instance, is about 13 electron volts. A medical X-ray, a modern X-ray set, is about 200 kilo electron volts (keV). Some particles decay naturally and give off uh, give off radiation at 4.2 MeV. The LEP collider beam, which I worked on before the LHC. At a beam energy of 45 GV, and a TV is currently the highest energy accelerator in the world. This is the Tevatron in Chicago, so it's not the LHC at the moment. The Tevatron still holds this record. Its beams are 1 TV, and that collides protons and antiprotons in Chicago, and uh, has been running for some years now. <clears throat> so 1 TV is like having a battery for every star in our galaxy. So there's 10 to the 12 stars in our galaxy a one-volt battery. Now, even this isn't as good as nature. Whatever we do in accelerators isn't as good as nature. Because if you look at cosmic rays bombarding the Earth, the highest energies found in cosmic rays are greater than 10 to the 20 electron volts. Now, I've run out of, uh, I've run out of units here. I don't know what that is, what uh, prefix you put in front of the electron volt. So nature produces really high-energy beams. <coughs> Okay, so that just helps you understand the units. So remember KV, MEV, GV, TV. Now, this uh, is the first circular accelerator that was invented in 1930. It's the cyclotron by Lawrence, and it was invented by Lawrence and Livingston at Berkeley. And this is very simple and very small, as you can see. Uh, this very first machine um, was only five inches in diameter, as you can see down here. And this basically consists of a source in the middle which emits protons, and it consists of a, a large magnet split into two. See these two Ds, A and B. And as the particle is emitted, it gets bent in the magnetic field in a circular orbit by the magnetic field as it gains energy. And across the gap, you can see perhaps that there's this thing here. It gets a kick of energy. So as it goes around, it gets a kick of energy. So its energy increases and it spirals in the magnetic field. So it's the very first circular accelerator. Okay, so that was 1930. So we move forward, whatever it is, to 2008, um, all those years. And this is the Large Hadron Collider. In some ways, uh, a progression from the cyclotron. Now, the Large Hadron Collider is something called a synchrotron. We don't need to worry too much about that at the moment. And this is a beast of a machine. You can see here, it has a crossing rate of 40 megahertz. So the protons go around this ring 40 million times every second. There are about 20 collisions every time uh, the protons collide. So you get 800 million proton-proton collisions every second whilst it's running. Huge amounts of data. And the technology, which I'll describe in a minute, very impressive. Seven TV protons, so it's seven times better than the Tevatron in the US. So when it eventually runs, it will become the highest energy. 27-kilometre circumference, compare that with the five-inch diameter back in 1930. Uh, it's all superconducting, which means there's 40,000 tonnes of metal cooled close to absolute zero, minus 271 degrees centigrade. And the protons are bunched together, and it tells you how many protons in a the bunch there. OK, so here's a picture of the LHC. In fact, it's not really a picture of the LHC. It's a picture of uh, the French and uh, Swiss countryside. Here's Geneva Airport. This white thing here indicates where the LHC is. OK. CERN is here on the border between... uh, France this side, Switzerland this side and these are the Jura mountains and to see the LHC you have to go underground because it's about 100 metres underground it's tunneled in the rock beneath the Jura and on the sort of plain between the valley which Geneva sits in and the depth varies between I think it's around 50 or 70 metres to 150 metres but on average it's about 100 metres down so this is the tunnel underneath, and there are four experiments, which I'll mention a bit later. <clears throat> so you can't actually see the LHC unless you go underground. Now, in the beginning, of course, this was a huge civil engineering project. Originally, uh, the tunnel was built for LEP, the Large Electron-Positron Collider. And these, this sort of gives you an indication of this almost like hell, isn't it, down there? And, uh, and lives were lost, I think. This was the, before the Channel Tunnel, this was the biggest civil engineering project in Europe. But the Channel Tunnel obviously has some problems with the sea, which we didn't have. So. And so LHC was built in the 80s. Sorry, uh, LEP was built in the 80s. And uh, LEP rang for about 10 years, from 89 to 2000. And then the LEP machine was stripped out. And there was an empty tunnel, which you can see here. So that was how the LHC started. The machine had to be built from 2000 and in in the last eight years, basically. Uh, And despite the tunnel being there from LEP, there was still a lot of civil engineering because new pits had to be built for some of the experiments, new transfer lines. And you can see these victorious men here. After This is the Atlas pit, I believe. This is the pit that the Atlas experiment sits in. And there is one of the uh, machines they have to use to to bore through the rock. it's a huge amount of civil engineering. Now, you tend to think of the LHC as being one accelerator. The newspapers always say the LHC, but it's a number of accelerators. And this gives you a plan of the CERN complex here. And in fact, the protons start down here. And they all start from this bottle of gas. It's a bottle of hydrogen. And it goes into some device here, which I know very little about, called a duoplasmatron. And that just accelerates, strips off the electron from the hydrogen and leaves the proton and accelerates that proton to about 90 kV. It then goes through another small accelerator, but then eventually ends in something called a LINAC. This is a linear accelerator. It takes up to 50 MeV. And there are two linear accelerators, because there's one used for protons and one used for heavy ions, things like carbon atoms, oxygen atoms, which will also be injected into the LHC. (coughs) And then after leaving the LINAC at, at this energy, they go into the proton synchrotron. The proton synchrotron was, I think, completed in 1959. been at CERN a long time. And at that time, it was the highest energy accelerator in the world in 59. But it can only reach 25 GeV, which is fairly small scale these days. <coughs> and before that, there was a, this booster synchrotron here, PSB. So they go in the LINAC, in the PSB, in the proton synchrotron, and then after the proton synchrotron, they go into the, what's called the SPS, or super proton synchrotron. Okay? And that is 7 kilometers in circumference. That never got to the um, stage of being called the world's lar- largest um, energy accelerator. It was picked by the Americans, I believe. But it gets the particles up to 450 GV. Okay? And then when they're being accelerated in the SPS, they're transferred into the LHC, which you can see here, 27 kilometres. At that point, it accelerates things up to 7 TV, and very close, I've missed off some of the decimal points, very close to the speed of light. OK, so that's the complete cycle. So technically, when something goes wrong down here, it will affect the LHC. <coughs> but these accelerators have been running for many years and are pretty reliable. Okay, so in terms of how it works, there's a little animation here. Oops. So you inject uh, protons through the linear collider into that booster, into the proton synchrotron. They leave the PS into the SPS. You keep doing this, building up the bunches of particles. Then they reach the right energy. They're transferred at 450 GeV into the LHC. I remember, they've got to, protons got to go around in both directions because you want to collide them. At some point in the ring, you collide the two protons in an experiment. This is the Atlas experiment. and You study the collisions. Okay. Okay, so in terms of how an accelerator works, again, you don't need to know the formula. But basically, when you've got a charged particle sitting here, and it's... Uh, Influenced by electric and magnetic forces, there are two effects. One is that the electric field will accelerate the particle. So, again, this thing have on the positive and negative plates. If the particle is charged, it will accelerate. So electric fields are used for acceleration. And magnetic fields are used for bending the particle. Okay, Those people who did A-level physics will always worry about Fleming's left-hand law or whatever it is, about which way particles bend. But depending on whether it's a positive particle or a ne- negative particle, it will bend in different directions. So that's the basic idea, magnetic fields for bending, electric fields for acceleration. Now, the main components of a synchrotron uh, are listed here in this little sketch where you can see it's rather simple in a sense because you've got... Uh, You've got bending magnets here in blue, sorry, focusing magnets in blue, That's, those are to focus the beam. You've got bending magnets in white to bend the particles around in this circle. And you've got these things called radiofrequency cavities. And those are the things that give the kick of energy to the particles as they go around. So there's very few components in some senses when you look at this. And in a collider you have particles going both directions. Okay, so what does LHC look like? Well, as I said, it was underground. Here's one of the bending magnets being lowered underground into the LHC. It's the access pit. There's a big crane at the top. And it comes down, just about makes it by the looks of it. And uh, there are about 1,200 of these dipoles in LHC. Superconducting. Okay, Eight Tesla bending power. So very high magnetic fields. And there's a sketch here of the technology used to build these things. OK, this is all cooled by superfluid helium. <coughs> Here's a more conventional magnet. This is a, a dipole magnet that's used to transfer the beams. And here you can see the two poles. See, it's a dipole, north and south. And if you do Fleming's left, left hand right, or whatever, you'll find that it will bend particles around in the horizontal plane. So that's used to guide the particles around the ring and, into the trans- and, and through the transfer lines. So those are the bending magnets. <coughs> to the main component and as I said they're all superconducting and uh, making these superconducting magnets is on the edge of technology really and they're all based on this uh, stuff called Rutherford cable named after the Rutherford laboratory where I come from and they're made up of niobium and titanium strands see all the fibers here Uh, that's the superconducting material and that's cooled to 1.9 Kelvin, so just above absolute zero, two degrees above absolute zero, using uh, superfluid helium. And there are about 6,000 cold magnets in LHC which are cooled to this very low temperature. Um, and this shows what you have to do. You have to embed uh, this superconducting material in a normal conductor because if something goes wrong, something has to carry all that current away in these magnets. And because they're superconducting, the current is something like 12,000 amps they can carry. that's one of the reasons for for designing them like this. And the LHC has a stored energy of 600 megajoules. Now, a train, a TGV train, going at about 120 kilometres an hour, has about a stored energy of 300 megajoules. So an enormous amount of stored energy in in these magnets. OK, focusing magnets I've uh, mentioned... uh, these are called quadrupole magnets because they've got four poles. And depending on what you do with those poles, you can squeeze the beam either this way or that way, vertically or horizontally. And there's, if you look in the textbooks, they all go on about strong focusing. Basically, all that means is if you keep focusing beams in the vertical and horizontal direction, if you keep doing that, you get some net focusing overall and make the beam smaller and smaller. And it's a bit like in optics when you can do this with, with lenses. OK, this is a more old-fashioned quadrupole magnet from LEP. Again, you can see the four poles. So these are all used to squeeze the beams down. Because remember, they're protons. They've all got positive charge, so they all want to blow apart. So it's a very difficult thing to focus the beams. OK, and there are many magnets in LHC. Uh, I won't go through what they do particularly, but here's a, here's a magnet built at Fermi Fermilab. Uh, it's one of the things they had problems with in the early days. This focuses the beams near to the experiments. So it's called inner triplet focusing magnet. These are octopole magnets, basically because there's uh, presumably eight poles here. Here's a sextopole magnet. This is from LEP, though, not from LHC. It's got six poles, and that's for correcting the energy spread in the machine. And here's some in the machine, some of the octopoles in the machine. So magnets galore. And, of course, you have to give energy. Remember, this thing of giving the particles a boost as they go around the ring. And these are the superconducting radiofrequency cavities. These, I think, are over 400 megahertz, I think. And basically, the way to think about this is that as they go through here, there's like an electromagnetic wave which captures the particles and gives them a push. And it's a bit like surfing, it's, uh, is the best analogy. So timing is everything in surfing. If you catch that wave just right, as we all know in surfing... You'll get a nice boost towards the shore. If you get it wrong, then nothing works, you know, you're all wiped out. So, hence the name synchrotron. Everything has to be synchronized, so all these things work together. So, that's what gives the energy to the LHC. And it's a very cold machine, as I've already mentioned. Um, uh, here you see the ring, and it's actually divided into sectors eight different sectors. And they're all cryogenically independent. Okay? And that's important because this is the largest cryogenic system in the world. And by definition, one of the coldest places on Earth. You can call things to these temperatures fairly routinely in physics laboratories, but to do it on this scale is, is, uh, is almost unheard of. And you can see that until recently, all these sectors were at their lowest temperature, minus 271 degrees or 1.9 Kelvin. And this is the problem where they encountered, this is the sector where they encountered a problem uh, about 10 days ago, whenever it was. And you can see this sector is being warmed up. Now you can't do this quickly. It takes time. It takes about a month to uh, to warm up and a month to cool down. So if you have a problem, that's the sort of turnaround time. Okay, you're looking at two, two months. This might speed up, but that's the current rate at which things uh, uh, can be done. So they've got a problem at the moment, so this is being warmed up, they'll fix the problem, and there'll be a shutdown anyway over the winter. Okay, now I'm no cryogenics expert, but I'll show you some pictures in any case. So this is, this is vast engineering on, you know, on a vast scale. Loads of refrigerators have to be there to produce the, the liquid helium, all the transfer and distribution lines through the accelerator. And Of course, you've got to store the stuff above ground. This is the helium storage. And there's 40,000 leak tight junctions hopefully that had to be made and everything's pre-cooled first of all with liquid nitrogen down to this temperature and then use the liquid helium to get right down to those temperatures (coughs) Okay, so hopefully you eventually produce some proton beams um, and uh, one of the problems is that you actually have to focus these beams to almost the diameter of a human hair Okay? That's the size, that's the diameter of the beams. That's what you're playing with. So somebody said it's like shooting sparrows in the dark. You're trying to focus these beams uh, separate and come in to a point where they collide and interact. Okay? So it's what makes it very difficult to tune these machines. And accelerator physicists will talk about the luminosity of the machine. Well, that's a vitally important parameter. That's the number of particles per square centimetre per second. And LHC has got a design lume, a peak luminosity of 10 to the 34 protons per centimetre per second. And that's the thing that they'll have to strive to get to over the next year, I guess. So squeezing these beams down is vitally important to get that luminosity. A vacuum is vitally important. Um, the whole of the machine is at vacuum. It's pumped out. Uh, because if it wasn't pumped out, all those protons would collide with air molecules and scatter. So it's uh, the numbers here 6,500 cubic metres of pump volume. So that's like pumping out a cathedral, let's say Bath Cathedral, um, and, and making that a, a vacuum that's, that's better than in space. Okay? And again, we have this problem of stored energy. We had stored magnetic energy before, but these beams have got their own energy. Once these are travelling around at 7 TV, um, the energy stored in one beam is 316 megajoules. And you can see the comparisons here. It's like a TGV train going at full tilt, or 77 kilograms of TND. And if you put a half tonne of copper in front of one of these beams, it will get melted. And it's the same as an aircraft carrier travelling at 12 knots, so a lot of energy. So when something goes wrong, you need these things. You need to be able to dump the beam very quickly. Now, I'm not going to go into the mechanism of this, but here's the ring, and there's some tunnels here and here where the beam gets deflected into these dumps. So this is when they're being built. Okay, so there's some very fast magnets here which deflect the beam. This is a septum magnet, and they kick out the beam. And at the end of there, there's some huge block of absorber they mainly made of graphite here, eight metres of graphite, concrete shielding, <coughs> And that absorbs the beams. <coughs> and if you get this wrong, you can wipe out the machine very easily. Because these superconducting magnets, you only have to hit them with a the proton beam, and they will quench. They will go normal. The temperature will rise, and all that current that is flowing through in a superconducting magnet suddenly has to go through what is effectively a normal magnet. So that's what's called a magnet quench. And that's basically what they had... Uh, The other week, uh, due to a faulty connection. So that's the Large Hadron Collider. That's another picture. Okay. Uh, That's the machine. But, of course, moving on to the rest of my talk, there were some experiments. Now, I'm not going to say too much about the experiments today. You'll have to invite me back if you want to hear about the details of the individual experiments. This is the ATLAS experiment. And there are two general-purpose experiments, ATLAS and CMS. ATLAS is the biggest in terms of number of people and volume. And this will be one of the experiments looking for the Higgs particle and things like supersymmetry. And this shows you that each experiment has its own magnets. magnet. Uh, this shows you the toroidal uh, windings for their, their muon magnetic field. The whole experiment gets inserted into that. That's sort of the, the shell of the experiment. A very iconic picture. keep seeing that cropping up everywhere. Uh, So that's ATLAS. As a competitor, another general purpose experiment called compact muon solenoid, CMS, but it's not really so compact. In fact, it's heavier than ATLAS. And again, this will be doing the same sort of physics as as ATLAS. And then there are two specialized experiments. This is the LHCB experiment. This is the experiment I work on. And this has got a different geometry. You notice this is, doesn't look like a colliding beam experiment. Those all look sort of spherical and cylindrical. This is more sort of flat. And that's because it's specialised to look at, at, at these uh, matter and antimatter asymmetries. Uh, and the beam actually interacts here rather than in the centre of the apparatus. The, tar- the, the protons collide here. And this only looks at one half of the sort of solid hang- angle that it could do. And there's a typical interaction. So that's looking at antimatter. And this is the ALICE experiment, the second specialised experiment. Uh, this has got a huge magnetic framework here, uh, which was used by another experiment. And this is specialised because it's looking at a state of matter which supposed to have existed towards the start of the Big Bang. It's what's called the quark gluon plasma. And so ALICE will actually look at colliding things like carbon ions. It will look at colliding protons as well. But occasionally what they will do is fill the AHC with carbon ions or oxygen ions or whatever and collide those. And because there's many, many more particles, you can produce these denser densities and look at this gluon plasma. Okay. Now, um, you keep seeing in the newspapers that the LHC is the Big Bang machine. Well, yes, maybe. It uh, doesn't really produce Big Bangs in that sense. What it really means is that if we're here today, and look backwards towards the Big Bang here, there was an era towards the start of the Big Bang when particles were created at very high energies. And this is really what particle physics is about. It's about looking at these particles, looking at their interactions in the early days of the Big Bang. So we're trying to recreate some of the conditions that were around at that time. Okay. And, of course, Einstein was the person who came up with this famous equation, E is equal to mc squared. If you have enough energy, you can create new forms, new particles, more massive particles. So in that sense, we're going back further and further towards the start of the Big Bang. And energy is also proportional to temperature. This is some Boltzmann equation here. If something's in thermal equilibrium, energy is proportional to temperature. So, again, increasing the energy is like increasing the temperature and the conditions are going back to the Big Bang. But we're not really creating big bangs in the, in the sense of, you know, something terrible is going to happen. And that's, that's another way of looking at it. Here you see the time after the big bang. And each, each accelerator, this is the LEP accelerator, that got to in this sort of conditions, a, a fraction of a second of the big bang. And each step in is taking us back towards uh, the conditions at the start of the big bang. OK, well, real data has actually arrived in the LHC, as I'm sure many of you know. It was difficult to escape this. It was in the newspapers, on the TV, on the Internet. Uh, and on the 10th of September, uh, proton beams were circulated in the LHC in both directions. And this picture here shows the first two turns around the collider. And these are the beam spots. That's turn one, turn two. This is some monitor, which has so got deflectors here. You can see the beam. And this trace here shows how it deviated as it went round the ring. These are the offsets through the various sensors. So great success, everything worked. Experiments actually recorded some interactions, because even though there weren't collisions, uh, the particles interact with something in the accelerator. Um, And you can see some collisions here in Atlas. Very pretty. In CMS, in LHCb, and Alice. So... um, that was the first data, and, and LHC was supposed to carry on commissioning, but as, as well known, it hit a fault, that's being rectified, and it's due to start up again next year. It was always planned to have only a short run this year to sort of shake down things, shut down for the winter, and then restart next April time. Now, the current schedule is something, like they say next spring, whatever spring means. I don't know what spring is actually, but uh, they haven't given the precise date, but next spring. So uh, we have to wait a little bit longer to get those collisions. But when they come, this is what we're going to get. This is the frightening thing. Atlas, 7,000 tonnes of detector. CMS, 12,000 tonnes of detector. Look at the number of electronic channels. Hundreds of millions of readout channels in each experiment. (coughs) And this produces data, of course. And the raw data flow from Atlas is 320 megabytes per second. CMS, 220 The specialized experiment's a bit less. Well, Alice have very big events because they're using these heavy ions. So 100 megabytes per second. You add this all up, it's a data flow of 700 megabytes every second. Now, LHC will run continuously for about eight months each year, round the clock. So you've got to keep up with this huge data volume that's being produced from the machine. And there's this PR plot here. If you actually put this onto CD, not that anybody does, you would actually end up with a mountain. I forget how high it is, but it's... uh, it's huge. Uh, says here, 20 kilometres high, over 20 kilometres high. Okay. And that's per year, right? You do this each year, every year. So this is the, the challenge that faces the experiments. The other challenge is the fact that all the users aren't at CERN. You might think they are, but they're not. They're spread all over the world. And this map shows you the distribution of CERN users. Uh, and CERN really is a worldwide lab now. Okay, it started off as a European lab. These are the member states, about 6,000 people from the 20 member states. And then you get observer states, which includes the US. They're putting in a lot of money into LHC uh, in terms of payment in kind. And then various other st- states. And you get some odd bedfellows here as well, and I don't mean the English and the French, but, for instance, you get the USA and you get Iran. So it really is people from all nationalities working together. But, of course, they can't all be at CERN, so this means that we have to do something about that. Uh, now, I've got a historic slide here about the World Wide Web. And one of the reasons the World Wide Web was invented at CERN in 1990, or around 1990, was to deal with the vast amount of information from experiments. This thing of sharing information. Of course, the rest is history. Everybody uses Facebook or whatever, all these social networking sites. Everybody uses the Web. And it's become such a common thing that it's spread all over the world. And if you look down here... Um, there's a, the world's stats on internet use, the last time I looked, said almost 1.5 billion people worldwide were users of the internet. Well, the internet isn't the web, but anybody who has access to the internet almost certainly uses the web. So that means in those few years since 1990, you've suddenly got 1.5 billion users. And the world population is only 6.6 billion. So it's an incredible amount, if it's, if it's correct. So, this was invented by Tim Berners Lee uh, in collaboration with Robert Callow uh, to solve the information management of the LEP collider. So, it was basically information. So, writing things down, things down on paper, I wanted to share them over the computer. But for LHC, we really have a problem with the data. And this gives you an idea of the challenge. Um, a typical interaction at the LHC, this is from the CMS experiment, will look like this. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what's going on there. All right. And this is because of these ferocious interactions, remember many there are per second, um, and the fact that you get pile up of events. Many particles are interacting at the same time. But buried in there somewhere is, for instance, the Higgs boson. And here's a possible candidate for Higgs boson. The Higgs boson decaying to four muon particles. It doesn't matter what muons are, but it decays to four muons. So you try and extract from that this. So it's, about, it's like looking for a needle in 20 million haystacks is one way of putting it. That's a sort of selectivity that you've got. You've got to process the data and be able to analyse the data and find that one event, or well, more than one, hopefully. And this basically says the same thing. Okay, so um, at the same time as designing the LHC and the experiments, there was a move to uh, design the computing, uh, the computing systems, and in 2005, each experiment came up with a, a report on their computing requirements, and also the machine. And when they added them all up, um, the numbers were a little bit frightening, because what it meant was that um, we needed 100,000 of the fastest computers. But more frightening than that was the amount of data there's 15 petabytes, and I'll come on to what a petabyte is in a minute. 15 petabytes of data a year. Not megabytes, not gigabytes, not terabytes, petabytes. And we needed to start off with about 50 terabytes, and it would grow at this rate every year. And that would be just the first full year, and we need twice as much in three years' time. And there was no way this could be funded at CERN, centrally. Just no way that you could put it in one place. And that would have been the, the system at one time. In fact, when I started out in particle physics... Uh, This was the sort of computer I used. This is an IBM 370 mainframe computer. I actually looked up the report in 1978. It said that this increased its memory from two megabytes to three megabytes. Okay? That's what we had to work with. Okay. And this PowerPoint thing is fifty megabytes here, you know. So I couldn't even use PowerPoint probably. And this was the largest amount of memory on any research council computer system. Okay? This was unusual. But, of course, the reason this was true was because everything was expensive. Core really meant core. Memory was based on these magnetic cores. Semiconductors had only just sort of started to take off. And, of course, this is Moore's law. The semiconductor industry has has revolutionized the whole uh, area of computing. And now, in a laptop like this, I have many, many times more CPU power than in something like that. So, in terms of digital data, that's just again just a, a slide to sort of orient you. Well, one bit is just an on off switch basically. A byte is a collection of bits. And if you collect four bytes together, that's the word, a computer word, if it's a 32 bit machine. And then you have the usual thing kilobyte is a thousand bytes, megabyte is a million bytes, giga is a thousand million, tera is a million million, peta. Okay, what is it? It's a thousand million million. Okay, and you can even go higher. This thing's called exabytes. Now, again, I've put you know, the complete works of Shakespeare, if they're digitized, could fit onto five megabytes. The CD is 700 megabytes. That gives you an idea of a megabyte. Terabyte is the world annual book production for one year. Now, it's about somewhere between 8 and 39 terabytes. There's, there's actually a, an institute that actually tries to do all these calculations. I I don't do them. (laughs) And 200 petabytes is supposed to hold all the printed materials that have ever been produced. And if I believe this website, the World Annual Information Production is about, of everything, film, print, you name it, is two to three exabytes. And all the words ever spoken by humans is about five exabytes. I don't believe, you know, I don't necessarily believe all those numbers because you have an idea that petabytes are big, right? Petabytes are huge, (laughs) And, again, to orient you historically, this is the first disk drive that was produced in 1956 by IBM. It weighed a tonne. It had to be loaded on a forklift truck to get it into Pan Am's aircraft. And it fitted into the IBM 305 RAM app computer here. But it was only five megabytes. So I said, my PowerPoint slide on here is 50 megabytes. So I'd need 10 of these to just store this PowerPoint. So look at the way technology has, has progressed. Now there'll be some tiny disk drive in here that's probably 120 gigabytes. So, okay, historically there's been great progression. Can we make use of that progression? Well, maybe, because back in 1998, two gentlemen, uh, Ian Foster and Carl Castleman, came up with the idea of the grid. Okay, It's not invented at CERN. This was in the US. And they defined a grid as a hardware and software infrastructure that provides dependable, consistent, pervasive and inexpensive access to high-end computers. Well, they wrote a second book a few years later, maybe they needed the money, I don't know, and they redefined things slightly. It coordinates resources that are not subject to centralised control. So that mainframe computer, that isn't part of the grid, right? It uses standard open general-purpose protocols and interfaces. OK, I guess things like Internet Explorer of standardised web browsers, for instance. And the crucial thing is it delivers non trivial qualities quality-as-a-service has to deliver this huge amount of computing power and storage power. So it's something like this. It's a worldwide network, maybe, or an international network of computers that are connected together. That in itself is nothing new. Uh, And it's analogous to the electricity grid. Here we have a picture of the electricity grid. You have power stations and, and such like. And the electricity is distributed by cables. That's the distribution infrastructure. And you have a standard interface, a plug, which you plug into. Okay? And the idea is similar with a computing grid. You have all the infrastructure distributed all over the place, all over the world potentially, connected by the fibre optics of the internet, and you connect via, well, not a plug, but a router or something. There's some standard interface and some standard protocols. And physically, what it looks like for particle physics is something like this. The data comes off the detectors, goes through online computer farms. All all the experiments have their own computer systems. And then goes to the CERN Computer Centre. It's a bit like a wedding cake. This is the top tier, tier zero. And then the data gets distributed to a number of tier one centres. And there are 11 around Europe, around the world. And then connected to each tier one, there's another tier, tier two. So in the UK, it'll be Scott Grid, North Grid, South Grid, London. There are four tier two centres. And these are clusters of computing systems. And if you break it down further, you see the individual institutes and individual machines, if you like. This isn't necessarily true for every grid, but this is how it's been done in particle physics. And this is built on top of a sort of global infrastructure. There are two projects. One's called EG, Enabling Grids for E-Science, And in the US, there's the Open Science Grid. So they've built up much of the infrastructure for this. And so we're actually putting everything on top of that and working in collaboration. And EG is a European project that's gone through various phases. <clears throat> and in terms of how you use this, well, you've got an angry user up here, what it looks like to be an angry user, and all he does is log on to a, 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 an interface machine, which is here, and he can, he can use the whole of the grid as if it's one computer. Because down here is the fabric. So, look, at the moment, the grid is made up of 259 sites over 53 countries, and we've almost got to that 100,000 computers. So this worldwide network is down here, He submits programs through the grid. And there's a lot of clever stuff, which is called middleware, which I'm not going to go into today, uh, which does all the difficult problem of of scheduling the programs and deciding where they run and making sure they go back to him at the end of it. So it's like a supercomputer uh, that you can access. Here's some pictures. This is the tier zero at CERN. Now, this will only provide 20% of the computing power for LHC. The other 80% will be in those Tier 1 centres. But again, you see we're getting there. These petabytes of storage are being built up. Everything has high-speed networks. So there's 20,000 uh, CPU cores, 16 petabytes of disk, 30 petabytes of tape. And you can see they don't look like the computers of old anymore. Our racks of essentially PCs. And you see them all, all here. But vast numbers of them, warehouses full of them. And in the UK, uh, the GridPP collaboration has built up the UK grid, and that's a collaboration of 19 UK universities, Rutherford Lab and CERN. And that's gone through three phases, and here's all the members. If I've got all the logos, I've probably missed somebody out. And we're just about to enter the sort of exploitation phase. All this stuff has to work to analyse the data. So just like LHC, it's been prototyped, it's been built, and now we've got to use it. Here's the UK tier 1 centre. It's just being built. Uh, eventually, in December, it's supposed to be opened. And this is the artist's impression, and it's always encouraging when there's some resemblance. In terms of hardware, again, the numbers are big. These are the CPU clusters, disk clusters, tape robots. So 3,000 CPU cores, 2.3 petabytes of disk, 2 petabytes of tape, uh, and it's all growing. Okay? So that's the main UK computer centre. The second level of computers, the Tier 2 centres, are shown here. Scott Grid, North Grid, South Grid, London Grid. And you can see, I mean, uh, the nearest here in South Grid would be Bristol. Uh, It's a collection of all those universities. Again, they're providing two petabytes of storage, 10,000 computers essentially at the moment, or job slots anyway. Of course, you have to get the data from CERN to all the Tier 1 centres. So there's an optical private network specially set up so CERN's at the middle here, and the data has to flow to all these centres, all these Alum centres. There's a 10 gigabit per second dedicated light path between all these centres. And the Tier 2 centres are connected by the sort of general research networks. They're not on this light path. So that has, to, that has to work to get all the data from CERN. Now, to give you an idea of performance, if you actually put in all the experiments and all the equipment we think they've got at the Tier 1 centres... You come up with with this table, and you see that the total rate of data out of CERN is 1.6 gigabytes per second. Remember, it was 700 megabytes per second coming off the detectors, but stuff gets added, gets processed, and data grows. So you have to have a system that's capable of dealing with this data flow. And in the UK, Airbit is 150 megabytes per second. So we've done the tests, we've done simulations and tried to do this without real data, remember. And over the last year, this is the network flow from the CERN tier 0 to the tier 1. So CERN actually has reached 1.6 gigabytes per second. It's actually peaked at 2.2 occasionally. But the problem is sustaining this over these long periods. Again, if you look at the RAL tier 1 centre, the UK tier 1 centre, that actually has reached 150 megabytes per second on occasion. But again, we're going to have to sustain this for many years. So resilience and robustness of this grid is very important. Okay, so this gives you... Let me just play this. This gives you an idea of the infrastructure. This is across Europe. I think the green things show running jobs, and the sort of magenta colour the jobs which are waiting... programmes which are waiting to run. And this is a movie, actually, which was done about uh, ten days ago. I could do this live, but I didn't know what the internet connection would be like here. Okay, so there's all the centres all over Europe that are connected together... We'll shift in a minute and show you some other ones. Let it go. To... Okay, so not just Europe. Uh, going across by the looks of it to Japan, China even over here, uh, India. It will shift again in a minute. I think going over there to probably Canada. Yes, it is, it's the east coast of America. This is the open science grid. And even in South America, we've got Brazil, Colombia, I'll just see the West Coast. There is the West Coast here as well. So it's a worldwide grid. Largest grid in the world, production grid. Okay, so the UK contribution towards that, this is particularly interesting. At the moment it's about 15%. We're contributing about 15% of the resources of that worldwide grid. It's been higher, it's been as high as 30%. But a lot of the power is provided in those university institutes, 80% of it. It's not all in these big centres. The important thing is the efficiency of doing this. This shows how difficult it is to get all experiments running at the same time. Their data flow. This is on the Tier 1 centre. These are the number of programmes running from each experiment simultaneously. Because the danger is you get conflict. And this gives you an idea of the efficiency of the grid. Okay? So this is as a function of time over the, roughly the last year. And averaged over all the UK and Irish sites. So you can see, there's times when glitches happen, you know, the network goes or something. But you can see that the efficiency is somewhere between 80 and 100, probably around 90%. But it's got to be at least 90, you know, it's got to be 90 plus all the time. Okay, so you might say, wow, this is all very well, you know, this is all very good for particle physics. But it's not just particle physics. The grid is uh, available to many other people to use. Um, There's a whole um, discipline called e-science, Chemists, biologists, uh, all sorts of people can use the grid. And I've got some applications here. Uh, In 2006, um, when the bird flu virus was topical, uh, some people wanted to test out uh, 300,000 compounds against eight target structures to see if these would work, if you could produce uh, an antidote to uh, a vaccination for bird flu So 2,000 computers across Europe and Asia were used for four weeks doing this modelling, and they came up with the necessary answers. It would have taken 100 years on a single computer. Climate change is an obvious example of where you can use the grid All these huge climate models that you have to run to understand global warming. Financial risk analysis, that's very topical, isn't it? They could do with some help at the moment, I think. But I went to an e-science conference a couple of weeks ago, and I was told that Bank of America and HSBC... We're using the grid to do... We're now using this to model their financial systems. So they get this huge amount of CPU power, and they can run many models and try and understand the markets. Typically 6,000 computers were, were mentioned. OK. Uh, fusion power, that's another area where, this uh, scientific area. Uh, there's a spin-out company that started up called Immense. There's a spin-out from particle physics. And what this is about is if you do a search on the web, for instance, if you use Google... I'm sure you've all done this. You've typed in a search, and you get back everything but the thing you want. Okay? So, for instance, I typed into Google, I think, yesterday, Bath, right? And then all I got was your splendid city. Picture after picture of Bath in all its glory. Well, happens if really I wanted to buy a bath, okay? Which is what most people perhaps would be wanting to do. So the whole point of this uh, project is to sort of analyse all the pictures on the web. So they actually, instead of looking at the description, the textual description in the captions, which is what Google does, they actually analyse the photograph and try and figure out what's in the photograph. So if you really want this, you'll get it. Okay? And there's a spin-out company based in Cambridge which has been set up to do this. And you can log on if you use that thing called Immense. I've probably mistaken, www there. Um, if you log on there, you'll get a search engine, just like Google, but it'll deal with pictures somewhat better. I suspect Google will catch up. OK, so this is the end of the talk. Uh, a little bit over, but not of the world. We're still here. I uh, just thought it was amusing that uh, the way the tone of newspapers changes over, well, what, 20 days or something, less than that. And They say a week is a long time in politics, but two weeks seems to be a long time in, in physics. Because on the 11th of September, the sun said, end of the world is postponed. Please check for announcements. And then this week, new era dawns at home of the internet, which they think is CERN, which it's not. But. So the flavour has gone from, you know, pessimism to, to optimism in, in a couple of weeks. I've not mentioned black holes, and I don't intend to, but there they are for you if you want. Uh, and that's the end of the talk. Thank you.